You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll be projecting all the scripture verses I'll be talking about on the screen behind me. Today we're gonna continue addressing marriage in our broader Gospel Foundations series. And as I explained a couple Sundays ago, the reason why we're including marriage in our Gospel Foundation series is because healthy churches are primarily made up of healthy families. And healthy families are primarily made up of healthy marriages. Uh, It doesn't matter if the parents have a good relationship with the kids. If mom and dad, if husband and wife don't have a good relationship with one another, then the family dynamic, the family culture will not be healthy. Well, last Sunday, we looked at one of the most important verses about marriage in the entire Bible, Genesis 2, verse 24. Today, we're going to look at one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible uh, about our entire faith. You could say that the Bible is many things. It's a, it's a collection of moral rules that teach us what is the right way to live. Uh, it is a, an account of historical events of people and, and things that happened throughout history, uh, things that happened long ago. You could say that it's an answer book to the most fundamental, important questions of life. But most fundamentally, what the Bible is, is it's a story. It's a story. It's a story about God. It's a story about us. And it's a story about what God has done to bring us back to himself. Genesis 3 is one of the most important parts of the story because it tells us where everything went wrong. You know, you almost wish that this moment had come later on in the scriptures, but paradise didn't last very long before uh, humanity messed everything up and we live in the corrupted, fallen state of nature that we currently experience. This is where we find the rotten seed that has borne the fruit of all the suffering and sorrow in our world. This is where God's perfect creation, which God declared to not only be good, but very good, where where that creation was painted black by the stain of sin and death. And it's where the relationship between God and man was so badly severed that only the God-man, Jesus Christ, could reconcile us through his death on the cross. We know of Genesis 3 as the fall, the fall of mankind from God's grace, the fall of mankind away from God's presence. It's, it's the fall where we inherited a corrupted, hardened heart that is not naturally inclined to God any longer, but to ourselves and to the world. But when he, what many of us miss is that Genesis 3 is also the moment when marriage itself first came under attack. Genesis 3 tells us how Satan attacked mankind but it also tells us how Satan attacked mankind's most sacred institution. It shows us how his lies led not only to the rotten seed being planted in the world, but into our very homes. Ray Ortland writes, it was in marriage 
and marriage at its best, marriage at its most delicate and beautiful, it was precisely there that the human race came under brilliantly evil attack and fell into all the miseries of our present condition. And so we want to answer two questions today. What, what exactly happened in the garden? When I mean, we read it earlier today, and for those who grew up in the church, it's a passage that you'll be familiar with, but, but what was it exactly that happened? How, how did Satan, in the form of a snake, so successfully tempt Adam and Eve that they would abandon God for a different way, a sinful way? That's the first question. And the second question is this. How does that event, how does the fall, what happened in the garden affect our marriages, our families today? That's what we're gonna look at today. The title of this sermon is Marriage and the Fall. Marriage and the Fall. We're gonna have two points today. First, the fall of mankind. And second, the effects of the fall on marriage. First, the fall of mankind. Now, if you were here the previous two Sundays, you'll remember that Genesis 2 tells us many things about marriage, about how God created men and women, uh, distinct and equal. Um, if we would boil it down for our purposes today to one thing, it's that God created the man to lead and he created the woman to help him in his leadership. The man was to be the head and the woman was to be the helper. He is given authority to lead his wife and she is given grace to follow his leadership. Genesis 2 verse 18 calls the woman a helper fit for him, which meant that she was like him, but she was distinct from him. She was equal because she was fit for him. She was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. She was taken from him and therefore equal in dignity and worth. She, just as he was, was made in the image of God, but she was also distinct because she was taken from his body and given to him as his helper. God didn't make men and women as clones. He made them as complements to, to pair together like two partners in a dance. One must lead, the other must follow. Both roles are equally important. Both roles are equally necessary. Both roles require skill. Both roles depend on a personal, intimate knowledge of the other person if the beauty of marriage is to be displayed. Now, this distinction between head and helper is a major theme in the Genesis narrative, not just in the language of, of the woman being made as a helper fit for him. And the New Testament writers relied on Genesis as they talked about marriage in the church era, which we live in today. Wayne Grudem helpfully sets out um, uh, a few trends that we should notice in the Genesis narrative that establish the headship theme. First, the order. Adam was created first, then Eve. That's something that the, the Apostle Paul relies on when he talks about men playing a leadership role in the church in 1 Timothy. Second, the naming of the human race. God named the human race man, not woman, and not some other gender-neutral term. Third, the naming of woman. Adam named Eve. Eve did not name Adam. And as we've seen, naming something was an exercise of authority over the thing that was being named. Fourth, the purpose, which we've seen at length. Eve was created as a helper for Adam, not Adam as a helper for Eve. Fifth, and this is something that we're gonna see in our text today, the primary accountability. Even though, as we saw in the scripture reading, Eve was the one who sinned first. 
She was the one who was approached by the tempter and gave in to the temptation. When God came to confront them about their sin, he approached the man first. He had the primary accountability. Sixth, the representation. It was Adam, not Eve, who had a special role in representing the human race. That's what we see in Romans chapter five when Paul talks about all of mankind being uh, uh, taken into sin through the first man, not the first woman. And so when we look at our text in chapter three, verse one, and it says that Satan approached the woman. He said to the woman and not to the man, we're meant to be immediately suspicious. Why is he going after her instead of her husband? And why is he appearing as a snake and not as the the fallen angelic being that he truly is? Well, the answer is that he wanted to undermine God's creation, not just by his message, but by his method, not just by the words that came out of his mouth, but by the means by which he would deliver those words. He He would undermine God's creation by who he approached and by how he approached. He went to the helper, instead of the head, to show his contempt for, God's, uh, for, for the God-given roles in marriage. And he, uh, he, he appeared to her as a snake, as a creature that she was meant to have dominion over. He, he found, you could say, he found wicked delight in having humanity submit to one of the creatures that they were meant to subdue. And so he, he slithers right past the head and goes directly to the helper. And he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, if you read Genesis 2, you'll know that's not what God said. You know that this is a deliberate misquotation that is actually meant to make God seem like a tyrant. Compare what Satan says God said to what God actually said. In Genesis 2, verse 16, God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Satan quotes him as saying, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. God's words are are permissive, they're positive, they're they're generous, they're open-handed. Satan's words are are prohibitive and restrictive and primarily negative. From, From the very beginning of the way in which Satan opens up the conversation, He's manipulating her views of God to make him seem cruel and unreasonable. And it begins to work. You can see how her views of God begin to be twisted in verses two and three when she replies, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, if you read that superficially, you'll say, yeah, she got it right. Right? Generally speaking, she got it right. I mean, maybe a little details. She might have missed out on the details. But, but when we really examine this statement, she's, she's made at least three errors in the statement, three significant errors in her recollection of what God had said. The first is that God didn't just say, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You know, God didn't just nudge open uh, Eden's gates and say, okay, I guess you can eat now. No, he, he threw them open and he, he declared with, with joy in his voice, eat it all, I'm giving it all for you to enjoy, that this is all for you. But she didn't hear it like that any, anymore. Satan's manipulation was beginning to work. 
The second error is that she recalled God saying something that he never said. Yes, he said that eating of the tree would result in death, but he never said anything about touching it. What's, what's happening here is, is as Eve's view of God shifts from, from him being a loving, generous father to being a cruel, oppressive, restrictive tyrant, she's beginning to invent rules in her mind as figments of her imagination as she starts to see God as a legalistic tyrant rather than as a loving father. The third error is the most significant. She mentions that God said they couldn't eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And that was right. She's referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that is described as a tree that is in the midst of the garden. But what she had forgotten was that there was another tree. There was another tree in the midst of the garden, a better tree a tree that would result in eternal life and an unbroken, unending fellowship with God and with man. Genesis 2 verse 9 says, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God had given her every tree in the garden to enjoy, including the tree of life. But the only thing she could think about, the only thing she could focus on was the one tree that she was not allowed to eat from. Satan sees that his manipulation is working, and so he moves in for the killing blow. He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Satan is saying, I mean, follow his logic. He's saying, God isn't holding back the fruit for your good. He's holding back the fruit to keep you from reaching your true potential. He, he's, Satan is making God seem petty and weak, even afraid of what, of what his creatures could become if they ate of this tree. And the worst thing about this is that she ends up believing it. She believes that if she, if she eats the fruit, she's gonna receive this blessing that God is holding back from her and she will become like God himself and perhaps then she'd be able to be the one who rules over the garden in ways that God had failed. So verse six says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She delighted in the fruit, she desired the fruit, we don't see this in the English translation, but the, the Hebrew root of both those words, delight and desire, is actually covet. Covet. She didn't just want the fruit, she coveted the fruit. And there's a difference. Coveting isn't just wanting something. Coveting is wanting something so badly that you're willing to give up God to get it. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter three that coveting is idolatry. Covening is idolatry. This wasn't just about eating a piece of fruit. It's about the statement that she was making by eating the piece of fruit. She was saying that the fruit, what the fruit gave to her was more valuable to her than God himself. And what was it that the fruit gave her? Verse six says that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She was seeking divine wisdom. And, and what Proverbs teaches us is that it is by wisdom that the Lord founded the earth. It is by wisdom that he created the mighty mountains and the, the deep seas around us. It is by wisdom that everything exists in his created order. 
And she wanted that wisdom. She wanted that divine wisdom to to create both the majestic mountains and the moral order that binds creation together. She, She wanted the wisdom that belonged exclusively to God so that she could be exalted like God. She had made an idol of herself. She she had taken God off of the throne of her heart and put herself there instead. But lest we think that this is all about the woman and her failings, verse six says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You know, she may have been taking the lead, but she was not acting alone. If, If... If eating the forbidden fruit was the original sin of mankind, then passivity was the original sin of married men. Adam was there. He he heard Satan misquote God's word and he didn't do anything about it. He, He could have pointed his wife to the tree of life when all she could see was the forbidden tree, but he didn't do that. He could have told his wife that giving up God for for autonomy, for self-serving autonomy, wasn't worth it, but he didn't. Instead, he, he listened, he sat there, he watched her eat it, and when she presented the fruit to him, he ate it as well. He made a deliberate choice to join her in her rebellion against God so that he could rule by his wife's side in God's garden. Ray Ortland again, captures what happens when he writes, the wife acting as the head, but not a wise head, and the husband acting as the helper, but not a wise helper. It was the breakdown of marriage that broke everything. Satan's plan had, had worked. You know, Jesus calls Satan a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. He kills by his lies, and that is what he has done. He has spoken lies to the first man and the first woman that has led to their physical and spiritual death. There was one thing that he was right about. He said that their eyes would be opened if they ate the fruit, and that is indeed what happened, but not in the way that they expected. Verse seven says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is what we can call an epic disappointment. Because what what they expected when they ate of the fruit was to see with divine vision, to wield divine wisdom and to see as God sees. But instead, all they could see was their shame. They try to cover their shame by covering their bodies, but it's no use. Verse eight says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What a a tragedy. That the God who used to walk in the garden side by side with them in unbroken fellowship, the God who had given them these trees to enjoy for their their good and for his glory, they're now hiding from his presence amidst those very trees. They hid because they were ashamed of their sin. And they hid because they were afraid of what, might, what, what God might do to them. But what God does first is he, is he begins by, by working to correct the disorder that Satan had introduced. We see that in who he addresses first. Satan addressed the helper, but God addresses the head. 
In verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And that, that you there is singular in the Hebrew. He's calling to the man and calling him to account as it should have been. And then in verse 11, he says, have you, singular, eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, singular, not to eat? God is calling the man to account because he was the head. And after God addresses the man, he addresses the woman. And after the woman, he addresses the serpent. The man, the woman, and the serpent, the way that it should have been, and the opposite of how Genesis 3 unfolded, the serpent, the woman, the man. And so we see God already at work reversing and destroying what the devil has disordered. Now the question, the second question before us today and where we're gonna spend most of our time is how does any of this affect marriage today? I mean, that's, that's instructive for us. What we've just looked at is instructive for us to understand the, the true nature of sin the, the, the reason for our broken fellowship with God, but, but how does that bleed into our homes, into our marriages, and into our families? Well, this leads to our second point, the effects of the fall on marriage. Now, the rest of Genesis 3 has, has a lot of content. We could spend several sermons on this chapter. What we're gonna do is we're gonna zoom in I'm never gonna think about Zoom in the same way. We're not gonna use Zoom, but we're gonna zoom in metaphorically on one verse, the one verse that relates directly, specifically to marriage. That's verse 16. And to be more specific, it's actually the second half of verse 16. You could call it verse 16b. It says this, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What does that mean? What does it mean for a woman to desire her husband? And what does it mean for a husband to rule over her? Well, some would interpret desire here from the woman's perspective as, as either being sexual desire or emotional desire. She, she wants to be with her husband. And, and that desire, that, that longing for him gives him the opportunity to rule over her, to take advantage of her. If that is true, if that interpretation is true, then this would mean that any authority distinctions in marriage were the result of the fall. They came after sin entered the world and after God pronounced his judgment. And therefore, as the argument would go, we need to do whatever we can to abolish authority distinctions in marriage. But that's just clearly not the case. We've already seen that the head helper distinction exists before the fall and not as a result of the fall. And when the New Testament teaches about marriage, it uses the same language of head and helper, the, the leader and the one who follows his leadership. And so what does verse 16 mean? The key to understanding this verse, and, and this is so important when we're reading our Bibles where we're trying to understand specific verses, is to look at the context. And, and when we look a little bit farther into the context that Genesis chapter four what happens in Genesis 4, many of you will know this, Adam and Eve have been casted out of the garden, they're starting to have children, they have two sons, Cain first and Abel second. Abel pleases God by the purity of his sacrifices, Cain does not please God because he is, he is holding back, he is stingy with his offerings. And Cain, of course, is being tempted, he's being tempted to, to, to do something horrible to his brother, and he ends up 
killing him. But before he does that, in the midst of that temptation, God says this, Genesis 4, verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, if you, if you are paying attention, you'll see that even in the English, the, 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 the words used in Genesis 4, verse 7 almost exactly parallel the words used in, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 16. The only difference relates to the nouns and pronouns. Uh, look at it. So in, in verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then chapter 4, verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This, this, my friends, is the key to understanding desire and rule in verse 16. The woman's desire for her husband is likened to sin's desire for Cain. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. The woman's desire for her husband is likened to sin's desire for Cain. It is not a relational desire. It is not a longing for his company. It is a desire to possess to overcome and to control. And the language, the picture language used is, it's like a lion that is waiting to pounce upon its prey. Likewise, the husband's rule over his wife is likened to the rule that God wanted Cain to have over his sin. He wasn't supposed to be patient with his sin. He was supposed to be Uh, waging war against it, to dominate it, to put it under his feet and to ensure that it had no influence in his life whatsoever. So, So when Genesis 3 verse 16 says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, what God is saying is that, that this is the beginning of a, an eternal power struggle that is going to exist in marriages as a result of the fall. Her desire is to control. His instinct is to dominate. She wants to lead. He wants to strip her of all her influence. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. He was supposed to love her as his own body, to lead her with with wisdom and patience and care. And she was meant to support his leadership by being a faithful helper, a helper fit for him, a, a helper who would counsel him and who would be his most intimate companion. But the curse of sin, it changed everything. Derek Kidner writes that in this verse, what we see is to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. And we may ask, why why did God judge them like this? Why did he pronounce this judgment on the way that husbands and wives would relate to one another? Well, it's because when God judges, what he often does is he gives people over to their destructive behavior. God was giving them over to what they wanted in the garden. They wanted autonomy. So God was gonna give them autonomy. But what they didn't expect was that their autonomy, their craving, their coveting of autonomy would not just fracture their relationship with God, it would fracture their relationship with one another as well. And this is what happens whenever a husband and wife vie for power. They're seeking what they want, their autonomous, selfish desires, rather than seeking the good of the other. It's a repeat of the fall. Every time, the the desire to be God in the garden has simply become the desire to be God in the household. We see this all around us. 
Perhaps you see it in your marriage. It may not be present to the same extent in every household, but it is present in every household. We may say that it's, it's just a cultural problem. You know, certain cultures have this power struggle between husbands and wives. You know, I was thinking about the common way of talking about Chinese culture and the phenomenon of the tiger mom. The tiger mom who is, who is not only controlling her husband, or her children, but controlling her husband as well. But what Genesis 3 verse 16 tells us is that this isn't just a cultural problem, it is a human problem. This inclination is written on human nature so that it transcends culture and generation. For the woman, it's often subtle. A scoffing comment here, a roll of the eyes there, or a a withdrawal of affection and companionship. The purpose of that all of all that we, we need to we need to understand it's not just her being passive aggressive. It's not just her being sarcastic. The, the purpose there is that she wants to manipulate and control so that her husband starts being the man she wants him to be and he starts doing the things she wants him to do. You may have heard the saying, and we kind of laugh at this, the husband is the head, but the wife is the neck because she turns him wherever she wants him to go. Right? You, you may have heard that. And we, we kind of laugh at it because we're like, oh, she's so clever, you know, she's found a way around his headship and, and she's the one who's really steering the ship. You know, my wife yesterday was bringing to my attention uh, because uh, her sister just had a baby and uh, her sister just sent her this message of two t-shirts for uh, uh, the father and the mother to wear. The, the father wears a shirt that says the boss and then the mother wears a shirt that says the real boss. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a common trend and we, we laugh at it, but, but what we need to recognize that it's not just being clever, It is being controlling, or it can become controlling. And that's not what God had designed marriage to look like. Well, how about the man? How has the fall affected the man? Well, the fall corrupts his exercise of authority so that he uses it to dominate rather than to serve. He he may do this by using his words to tear her down, he may, use, he may use his, his superior strength to, to intimidate her. He may even use that strength, the very strength that God had given him to protect her in order to hurt her instead. The one who was taken from his side to stand by his side is instead thrown under his feet to rule. My friends, that, that is not what biblical authority looks like, nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible does it describe authority as functioning and looking like that. Jesus told us that the one who would be great, the one who is given authority, the one who leads must must be the servant of all. And that includes husbands with wives. Jesus showed us that not only by his teaching, but by his example. I mean, how did Jesus come into the world? He, He didn't come as a tyrant. He came as a servant. Did he lead? Yes. Did he... Exercise authority, absolutely. But he never used his authority to serve himself. He always used his authority to serve others. That is true biblical authority. But that is not the general pattern in marriage. The the pattern in marriage is tyrannical rule, not patient leadership. We we see that in the New Testament. In, In the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul says one thing. 
Well, one verse where he says two things, but, but this one verse, two husbands in the entire book. In Colossians 3, verse 19, he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. Paul focuses on a husband's harshness because he knows that harshness is the fruit of tyranny. It comes from seeing your wife, listen, it comes from seeing your wife as a subject to rule rather than as a woman to love. You don't have patience with her. You don't take the time to understand her because you want to make decisions efficiently and effectively. And when she gets in the way of that, then you treat her with harshness. Men, it it ought not be so. We are to love our wives, not be harsh with them. We are to serve them, not rule over them. What we see, this, this tragic reversal, is that men tend to dominate their wives and serve their sin rather than serve their wives and dominate their sin. We see men doing exactly the opposite of what they are meant to do. And I mean, the same can be said of women. This is a power struggle. Both husbands and wives seek to control one another rather than serve one another and put sin to death together. I mean, there's so much more that we could say about this, but I'm just, uh, we, for, for sake of time, I'm gonna say one more thing. When a woman seeks to control her husband, he may respond with tyranny or he may respond with passivity. Tyranny or passivity, the two great sins of men, not just in our generation, but every generation. Passivity is what happened in the garden. As the woman took the lead, Adam stood passively by. His, his leadership withered in the face of, of her leadership. As the helper became the head, he gladly gave up his role. Now, that doesn't mean that a man can blame his wife for his passivity because he's responsible, just like God called Adam to account. But when a woman fails to support her husband's leadership, she shouldn't be surprised if his leadership disappears. And that's not the only attack on biblical masculinity. Biblical masculinity in, this ta- in these days is being attacked on multiple fronts. Egalitarianism says that men and women are the same. And so we don't know what it means to be a man. It's being attacked by transgenderism, which says that gender doesn't actually exist. And it's just whatever you create it to be yourself. It's being attacked by certain strands of feminism, which says that masculinity is oppressive. And so men should just give up their roles of leadership and go and, uh, and support women who have been oppressed for so long. It's even attacked, listen, it's even attacked by traditional patriarchy, which sets out an oppressive vision of, of authority that men simply don't want, and rightly so. The world tells us what masculinity is not but it doesn't say anything about what masculinity is meant to be. And and so it comes as no surprise then that we live in a generation of passive men. Men who shudder at the prospect of talking about masculinity and who have little to no idea of what it means to lead and to take responsibility. Now in the face of all these obstacles to marriage, A woman desiring control, a man ruling over his wife or completely abdicating his responsibility. What what hope do we have to recover true biblical marriage? 
Well, the answer is none if we look to ourselves. If, we just, if I just try to give you five principles for functioning better in a marriage, we have no hope. But if we, if we look to God, we have much reason to hope because he is at work restoring what Satan has disordered. We see that in verse 21, when it says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God didn't leave them to cover their shame by themselves. You know, their little sewn fig leaves that they're using to cover their bodies, I mean, they were pathetic. They were completely inadequate. But God, God clothed them with something better, garments of skin, in order to ease the burden of their sin. And many years later, God would send another man, Jesus Christ, who would clothe them with something even better, something that wouldn't just reduce their shame or help them bear their shame with a little bit more perseverance, but completely eliminate their shame. Jesus would be called the second Adam because unlike the first Adam, he would not give in to tyranny or passivity. He would be the perfect husband for the bride he had come to rescue and redeem and bring back to himself. He would take the initiative and leave his father's household to come to his bride, to his lost love. And he would take responsibility for her sins by dying on the cross in her place. If you are joined to Christ by faith, he will clothe you and eliminate your shame by giving you the robes of his own righteousness so that you never need to be ashamed again. That is his promise for everyone who repents of their sins and turns to Jesus by faith. Look, look to him, know his love and be transformed by it. And as we are transformed by Jesus, by the saving power of his cross, we will find that our marriages will be transformed as well. Because Jesus is the one who teaches men to love their wives as he loved the church. And Jesus is the one who teaches women to submit to their husbands just as he submitted to his heavenly father. In, in Christ, in his life and his death and his resurrection, we receive both the power and we see the pattern for biblical marriage. There is hope for marriage and there is joy. There is deeper joy in marriage if we would but look to Jesus to transform us. And we already see the, the seeds of that in Genesis chapter three. In verse 20, it says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam retakes his rightful place as the head and he names his wife. And he doesn't name her with harshness and bitterness. He doesn't give her a name to blame her and shame her. Instead, he, he calls her Eve. He calls her Eve, which sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver. He, he, he honored her because he believed that God was at work restoring her to be the helper that she was always meant to be. And so let me end with just a number of questions for you. Men, have you been harsh with your wife? Have you led her in such a way that you treat her more like a subject to rule than as a woman to love? Or perhaps you've been passive. Have you abdicated your responsibility to lead and taken a back seat when you should have been courageously, lovingly leading from the front? 
Well, if so, then you need to repent and turn to Jesus. You need to ask him for forgiveness. You need to ask your wife for forgiveness. And you need to look to Jesus as the only one who can give you the power and the pattern to love her the way that we were meant to. And ladies, have you desired to control your husband? Have you tried to make him follow your lead rather than joyfully, willingly following his lead? Have you tried to make him your helper rather than serving as his helper? If that's true, then you need to repent and turn to Jesus. You need to seek forgiveness from him and from your husband, and you need to commit yourself by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to change. Change is impossible for us apart from Christ. But in Christ, anything is possible. Even the broken marriages among us, even those who have been unduly influenced by the broken marriages of our parents or grandparents, these patterns can be broken because the gospel has power to save. Jesus has the power to change your heart. And if he changes your heart, then just watch and see as he changes your marriage. Let's pray. Father, we confess that the sins in the garden are the sins of each one of us, that we have coveted autonomy, loved selfish living more than we've loved serving you. And we look only to Jesus as our one mediator, our savior, to cover over our sins and to take away all the shame. And we pray that as Christ is known by us more and more, deeper and deeper, that the marriages among us would shine brighter and brighter. Like the full light of day as the sun rises in the sky, as the sun rises in our hearts, may the sun rise in our marriages and display the light of the gospel in our marriages. We, we ask for your mercy, we ask for your grace, we ask for you to powerfully move in Jesus' name. Amen.